recognize that none of us deserves to sit at your feet, to open up Scripture, and to hear from you. But we get to enjoy that marvelous privilege because of your grace. So we pray that in the next few moments as we do that together, uh, that we would indeed be enriched, encouraged, changed by what you say in Scripture. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, we're moving through the small book, letter of Second Peter. And you can turn there now uh, toward the back of your Bibles before First and Second and Third John, before Jude. Uh, you'll find Second Peter, of course, right after First Peter. And as you find your way there, uh, we'll be in chapter 2. And you might recall, those of you who were here last time, that the topic of false teachers has come up, um, the, the wickedness that is associated with false teaching. And I think about, you know, if, if letters were written today, we might expect the letters to address the rampant wickedness out there in the world, the rampant wickedness out there in society, right, that we feel we need to insulate ourselves from and that we continue to lament as we read the news. And part of why the election discussions are so charged is because we're trying our best to uh, keep at bay a worsening of the nation in terms of immorality and things like that. And of course, uh, I talked about that a couple of weeks ago. Um, but it's interesting to me that oftentimes what we get in Scripture is not how the world is behaving, but how supposed Christians are behaving, almost like that's worse. And Peter is not talking about how uh, unbelievers are behaving. The great wickedness that he laments, the great wickedness that he warns his readers about is not what's going on in the secular uh, government, secular systems, secular schools, but rather what's going on in churches. And I realize that there are many who would say you are not supposed to talk bad about churches. Um, well, that's unscriptural. Scripture's always going after churches. And we get to the book of Revelation and we want to skip past those first few chapters and get right to the horse and the blood and the sword. <laughs> but there's warnings, aren't there, that Jesus gives to his churches. Keep, keep it straight. If you're going to be a lampstand. And sadly, there, if you Google churches, all those churches that come up aren't all necessarily churches. They have the name church. They might have a steeple. There might be a cross in the sanctuary. They might have deacons. They might have elders. But it might not be actually a church. And how do you know? How do you know? Truth. Truth is how you know. And there's none of this, well, at least, you know, at least they're at least giving good moral lessons. What happens oftentimes is not falsehood by way of blatant lies, but falsehood by way of diluting truth. So how do you gather a crowd? How do you get people to come give Christianity a chance? Well, you don't talk about sin. You don't do that because then people don't show up. But see, those are false teachers today. And then we wonder, what in the world happened 
to this wonderful ministry when suddenly it's exposed that really the ministry was founded on greed and exploitation. What in the world happened to this ministry that was so prominent and now is falling apart when now suddenly it's exposed that the leadership was embroiled in sensuality? Well, Peter just told us that last week, right at the top of chapter 2. Watch out for these false teachers. They're really slick, but you're often going to find the connection to sensuality. You're often going to find the connection eventually to greed and exploitation. He says it right there at the top of chapter 2. And oftentimes when you see those connections, it's not from someone that's leading a cult. See, they're part of denominations with solid faith statements or non-denominational, but their faith statement is solid. My heart is heavy when I hear about flagship evangelical churches that as a strategy reduce talking about sin, reduce talking about drawing lines and talking about firm doctrinal stances. Let's make it a little more squishy. They won't say it that way, but let's make it a little more squishy so more people can feel like they can get involved. I have a friend who's at a prominent, large church. If I said the name, you'd go, not that church. And they had a frank conversation with him. You know, you're too truthy. Yeah, I don't think you fit here. It's not a good fit. And then his mind scrambles to think about what, was, what did he do? What, what did he do? Well, he talked about sexuality from the pulpit. That's what he did. Not, not a great fit. That just pokes at people, bothers people. Now there's a church that wants to protect attendance over truth. Is that not a false teacher? That's false teaching. And Peter's like, look, I know what's going on out there in the world. I know out there they're about greed and they're about exploit, exploiting people. And I think it is an exploitation of people when they come in supposedly to hear truth and instead we water down truth to tell you what your itching ears want to hear as long as you put some stuff in the plate when it passes by. Well, that's exploitation. And it is very tempting to fall into that as a church and as a minister. And, uh, you know, what's difficult about that is like, well, here's a pastor defending the smallness of his church. Maybe if that's your takeaway, I understand. I understand. But it's not about church size. It's about what compromises are made to try to get there. The compromises that are made to try to get there. And it is hard. It's difficult. But Peter laments what's going on in churches and calls that a great wickedness. And it's amazing the examples he draws throughout the Bible's history when he compares what's happening in churches with false teachers with what you can find in the Old Testament. So let's look at it in 1 Peter chapter 2. Of course, he talks about those who blaspheme the truth in in verse 2, and many are going to follow them and end up in their things that they are embroiled in, sensuality in verse 2, greed in verse 3, the exploitation through their false words in verse 3. And he says, their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. 
God is not sleeping and not noticing. God very much notices. And if your heart breaks over it, how much more does God's heart break over it? And God is not going to just simply not do anything about it. He is indeed going to do something about it. And here's how Peter argues. You know he's going to do something about it because God has always done something about rampant wickedness. He's always done something about wickedness. Then he gives us three examples. He says in verse 4, For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. Then he gives another one. If he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. And then he gives you a third one. Verse 6, If by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. And if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. Well, there's a lot to unpack there. I just wanted to give you the overview of the whole thing so you can see he's giving three examples of judgment, and you can see his argument is, you know that these, the, the, the false teachers that are running around gaining a following are going to be judged, and they're going to be judged hard, just as hard as God has ever judged anybody. And he goes through the Old Testament, and he goes to like the three biggest points that he's thinking of at this time in terms of God's judgment. And you remember these Old Testament stories, they're raw, they're difficult, they're gritty, so much so that throughout the church history, one of the heresies that we've come across and continue to come across is that the Old Testament God is one kind of God and the New Testament God is the gracious, kind God. Why? Because you read so much of this judgment stuff in the Old Testament. But Peter is one place where you'll find he's not saying there's an Old Testament God and a New Testament God or that it's one God, bad mood in the Old Testament, and he's kind of come around and he's a little softer in the New Testament. But it's the same God. And just like in the Old Testament, sin would increase and increase and increase. And it's like, where are you, God? Are you going to do something about it? Yes, he does. Yes, he does. He gives three examples of that. The first example is a strange one. Some people will say that this is just talking about when angels fell. I mean, Satan is not by himself, but took angels with him in that angelic rebellion. And rather than being the servants of God that they were supposed to be, they rebelled. I think most commentators, and I think it's probably right, are seeing a Genesis 6 thing here. Back when I preached through 1 Peter, uh, we talked about that weird passage in 1 Peter about these spirits in prison. When you read Jude, Jude also talks about this angelic rebellion, and because of that angelic rebellion, they were put into chains or pits of darkness. And of course, when you read Genesis 6, you see this that the sons of God, usually referring to angels, uh, cross the line in terms of species and uh, had sexual relations with human daughters. 
Some think that's not the right reading of Genesis 6. I think it is the right reading of Genesis 6. I think 1 Peter, 2 Peter, and Jude confirm that as long as a plethora of Jewish traditions that confirm that's the reading that Peter is talking about. Here's the point. The point is, God didn't just let it happen. He said, the angels have crossed the line, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put them into this underworld and hold them there for the day of judgment. As powerful as those beings are, as prominent as those beings were, he judged them. He put them in the underworld. It was for their judgment. It was for their sin. And it says, he did not spare angels when they sinned. You can, you can almost hear his argument is like, how much more is he, is he going to spare humans or lesser beings? He didn't spare the angels when they sinned. What did he do? He cast them into probably not hell there. The, the actual word is Tartarus. And if you're familiar with Greek mythology, it's just their word for the underworld. So he doesn't mean eternal fire, yet they're being held somewhere for that. And he means the underworld there. And he committed them to chains. Your translation might say pits. I don't want to go into the, the difficulty there. But either way, they are imprisoned in gloomy darkness and kept until the judgment. They cross a line, judged. If he did that with angels, what is he going to do to ministers? What is he going to do to churches? They're supposed to be teaching the truth and they don't. Well, now he stays in the same event, I think, and he just turns it from the angel side to the human side. Because what were the humans doing in Genesis 6? Well, the humans had continually wicked thoughts, it says. They were corrupt, and they were violent. Because of that corruption and because of that violence, God didn't just sit there. He did something about it. He didn't spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. I'm just like a God that does, he's not playing around. Now, there was uh, some time had transpired, and they thought, well, God is just going to let this happen. He's just going to let it happen because God is not the kind of God that as soon as you sin, you die or get struck by a lightning bolt. He gives you leash, right? And you see, continue the path of destruction, and there's time to turn around. But if you don't turn around, there is judgment for sure. He did it to the angels in Genesis 6. He did it to the human world in Genesis 6. And he completely and utterly destroyed them. He only saved eight people out of there. You can tell he's trying to encourage his people. You might feel small. You might feel alone. You might feel like everyone is turning aside. But he always keeps for himself a righteous group. But he will not let the unrighteous, he will not let the ungodly get away with it. God is a God of judgment. He is. He is a God of judgment. And he takes it very seriously. And so the thing here for us is not to look at this and go, oh, God is like that? You're supposed to go, yes! He doesn't just let them get away with it. We serve a God who cares. When you were a little kid and someone was picking on you and you, you, you know, you're told, like, oh, go tell the teacher. How disheartened are we when you go and tell the teacher and the teacher is afraid of the bully's parents? The teacher's afraid of the bully these days. 
and you just feel powerless. There's no authority to do anything about it. God is not like that bum teacher or derelict parents. He's a God that does something about it, and that shouldn't scare us if we're the ones that are saved in the ark. We should be encouraged that God is a just God. We are for justice. We want it to see it God's way. But of course, God is a just God, and it's good that he's a just God. It's good that he's a holy God. And so he's trying to encourage his people. I know you're surrounded by false teachers. I know it's so attractive to drop your small ministry setting and go join this ever-increasing, ever-attractive thing that leads to immorality, he's telling them. And it's based on false truths, false words, verse 3. Then he gives a third example. And some of you, if you've never even been around the Bible, you've heard of Sodom and Gomorrah. And this is a place in Genesis 13, 13, that tells us that they were great sinners. And they were wicked against the Lord. It didn't happen overnight, but increasingly they became more and more wicked. And you remember recently, I, I referenced this passage where Abraham is like, God, what if there's 50 people there that are righteous? Well, I won't destroy it. How about 40? I won't destroy it. And he keeps shrinking the number until the only people left is Lot and his family. And God is like, well, I'm not going to destroy Lot with them, but I'm going to take Lot out because I'm destroying this city. I was reading a, uh, an excerpt from an ancient historian that described Sodom in the New Testament days. And the author was saying, you can still go to Sodom now, and things look like fruit that you can grab, and you go to bite the fruit, and it just turns to ashes. Like, nothing really can grow in this wasteland. And so Peter calls it, it was turned to ashes, and they were made extinct. Just boom, done, it's over. You had your chance, wickedness after wickedness after wickedness, you just made it worse, and then it's just over. It's over what Peter describes as a swift judgment, swift destruction that is not asleep. It's not idle. God is not asleep at the wheel. The destruction is upon them now as they are awaiting, uh, the false teachers are awaiting God's eternal punishment. So he did it to the angels in Genesis 6. He did it to the humans in Genesis 6, the whole world. And he did it in Sodom and Gomorrah, wiping out these cities swiftly and totally. And his argument is if he did those, he'll do it now. It says in verse 9, he's keeping the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. God's wrath remains now on those, even if it doesn't look like they're being punished now. God's wrath and punishment is upon them because it's waiting and not asleep. It's right there looking at them. This punishment is coming. And he says in verse 10, especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. These are people that cannot be checked. You come to them with Scripture to correct them, and they're like, you know, you've got it wrong. You haven't translated that right. I've got it right. They can't be checked. No one can come alongside them and say, you need authority. No, I'm my own authority. 
even churches that belong to large denominations. Denominations have a hard time checking the celebrities, and they're afraid to lose those celebrities. They make a name for our denomination. Look, churches full of humans. Churches, denominations are full of humans. It's hard. It's hard to stay the course. Peter's not talking about the Democrats, the Republicans. He's not talking about school districts. He's talking about churches. And the judgment that comes upon them, that is scary. But it's only scary if you're greedy. It's only scary if a church is putting exploitation before ministry, before God's truth. If you are, then actually, rather than being scary, it's encouraging. (laughs) Why is it encouraging? Because you notice in these stories of judgment, he puts in there, I almost said he sneaks in there, but it's not sneaky, it's right there. He says, judgment on the ungodly, but what does he do with the godly? He rescues them. So right now you're suffering, right now you're surrounded, you're surrounded by bad guys out there, bad guys in the churches, bad guys in denominations, denominations that are splitting, heroes of the faith used to buy their sermons, used to go to their conferences, and now they're, they're atheists, or now they're, they were caught in adultery, or now they were caught swindling people, and you're so disheartened, that's so disheartening, and he's like, God has got you. He's going to rescue the faithful. He's going to rescue the remnant. That's always been the pattern. When you read the Old Testament, you don't read it as something that stays in the past. You read the Old Testament as something that is, that is an example of what's still coming. Peter makes that completely clear. Look what he did when he destroyed the world. He preserved Noah, verse 5. He preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. Everyone didn't get destroyed. Only those who didn't want to climb into the ark got destroyed. Because the ark is constricting, and the ark looks stupid. (laughs) And they didn't believe that God is going to judge. And probably one of the things that these false teachers are peddling is God isn't going to judge, Jesus isn't going to come back. And that's probably one of the reasons why Peter keeps coming back to this theme of judgment that is future and is certain. It's sure to happen But just as sure as the ungodly will be destroyed, the godly will be preserved. The righteous will be rescued. He knows how to rescue them. Verse 9. The example with Sodom and Gomorrah, he talks about Lot. He doesn't talk about Abraham because Lot was the one that lived with him, you remember. And Lot is a strange character, right? If you read the Old Testament, you're like, Lot, righteous? He was kind of a jerk. He kind of liked Sodom. Remember, Abraham gave him the choice. Where do you want to live? I'll live in the other place. He wanted to live toward the city. You know, like he loved it. He's enamored with it. So we we think about how attractive many of our cities are today to people. The life, the action, the atmosphere. I don't know. But Lot wasn't them. He didn't do what they did. He wasn't a totally clean character. He's he's a complex character. But what Peter's saying is, compared to Sodom and Gomorrah, he was righteous. You're like, where does Peter get that from? Probably from the fact that God brought him out. God told Abraham, I'm not going to destroy the righteous with the unrighteous. So he pulled Lot out. Now, in contrast to Abraham, Lot wasn't Abraham. And I think the 
the author of Genesis makes that pretty clear intentionally. But as bad as Lot was, as, as messy as Lot was, he wasn't them, and God brought him out. So, Lot, even though he lived among them day after day, look at, look at what Peter says, he was tormenting his righteous soul. Notice he doesn't say his righteous soul was tormented. He was tormenting himself. And one author I read, maybe that's because Lot was doing it to himself by living there. That's what you get for living there. But Peter's showing, but he lived there, but he didn't do what they did. And he was tormented by it. And he was greatly distressed by the things that he saw and the things that he heard. And I encourage you, go and read Genesis 13. And if you think our society isn't on the cusp of getting that bad, think again. This is the, the pattern of humans. We start redefining things, and before you know it, everything is normal. And when everything's normal, all bets are off. When all bets are off, you can do whatever you want to do. And the things that used to, taboo, used to be taboo are now normal, and the things that are now normal become the thing you're supposed to do. And now not doing those things becomes abnormal, and then what is abnormal becomes persecuted. Because it's not enough for you to let me sin. When you don't sin, you're judging me. And now I'm going to persecute you. Well, that's where, that's where it's always been. And so he was greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked. And it's, as a righteous man, he lived among them day after day. Now he did that on purpose, and you and I have no choice. This is where we live, and this is what we're surrounded by. And you think, wait a minute, I thought we were talking about churches. Now we're talking about society. I am talking about churches. You can drive up the road right here and see the flags, the rainbow flags on the corner. What do you think they mean, all are welcome? Of course all are welcome here. What do they mean by it? Well, your sin is welcome because we redefine it in the text. So we are talking about churches. We're talking about denominations who dilute the truth, who water down the truth, twist scripture for their own ends, and those ends are our denomination is bleeding. Let's open the doors to everybody and see if we could do a last-ditch effort here. Am I mocking them? Yes. Because God, people who stand up there with a Bible in their hands, sometimes no Bible in their hands anymore, are held to a higher standard. And it does upset me. When people look for churches, they search on Google, they're like, this one's close, and they go, and they don't know, they don't know, they don't have the background. How many people come here and it's like, wow, the teaching's great. And I think I'm going to hear, you're such a great teacher. And what I really hear is, you tell the truth. You say it from here. So even if I have a bad day, you know, I still get encouraged. Like, wow, people want to hear what this says. I need to get out of the way is what I need to do. And I hope that's what we're doing now. As we look at this and we go, okay, he's going after false teachers. Really clear at the top of chapter 2. And he's talking about the sensuality, the greed, and... Uh, the exploitation that happens with that, and then he makes judgment super clear, and we're supposed to be warned by that. Don't join the crowds that dilute truth and are unable to discern false words in verse 3. But stay with the godly. Stay with the truth. Stay with the righteous, because when destruction comes, you will be rescued. Just as he rescued Noah, just as he rescued Lot. Verse 9, the Lord knows if these things are true, 
and you could take it to the bank. The Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. We're going to experience trials. We're going to experience persecution. We're going to experience difficulties, but he knows how to rescue us out of it. God is watching. He's not asleep. He cares for those who are his. And the rescue is sure. So is the judgment. He keeps them under punishment until the day of judgment, especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling flesh and despise authority. So what we try to do here is to embrace the authoritative teaching of God's word. And we try to not just have a doctrinal statement that just collects dust in an office somewhere, you know, or just thrown up online. We kind of don't pay attention to it. But when we get together in our members' meetings, we affirm the covenant statement that we believe together. And when we, what we do on Sundays is let's try to sing Scripture, let's read Scripture, let's preach Scripture so that we can stay underneath the authority of God and not move away from it for something else and turn church into something else. This is a place not to despise authority, but to embrace authority, to receive it. And there are no human authorities of themselves. There's only authority here by virtue of sticking to Christ's words. He's our head. He's our chief. That means me and the elders are correctable. That means members can correct one another. And as Ben mentioned, even in our songs, even in our singing, we're correcting and teaching and admonishing one another, even in the singing of truth. That's what preserves us to the day of judgment. And you know that it's not just knowing good doctrine, it is knowing Jesus Christ as your Savior. We completely miss the point and the thrust, right, the, the agenda of those Old Testament stories if we miss Christ in them. Because what God is saying is the way I'm going to rescue people out of those cities, how did Lot get out? Abraham interceded. That's how Lot got out. Well, who intercedes for us? It's not your pastor, it's Jesus Christ. And we think about the flood. How did Noah's family, those other seven persons, how did they escape? They escaped because they were attached to Noah. That's how they escaped. The owner of the ark, the builder of the ark, the opener and closer of that door ultimately is God, but through Noah. And so the way to be rescued from judgment is to know Jesus Christ as your mediator, your intercessor, the one who makes a covenant relationship possible with you and God so that our own righteousness doesn't save us, but the righteousness that is afforded to us through Jesus Christ. That's the gospel. He died to take that wrath. If you've ever wondered, why was it a bloody death? Why did he, just, why did he get beaten? Why was it so gruesome? Because it's wrath poured out on Christ, not a slap on the wrist. And so whatever we've done, whatever our background, whatever the accuser comes along to tell you, hey, you did this in the past, God, you can't be in relationship with God, you point to the cross of Jesus Christ. That's how you get in the ark. And that's how you escape the flood. It's a relationship with Jesus Christ. He makes this argument if this, if this, if this, and if this, four ifs, well then this is true. This is true. Uh, some say it's a, uh, an argument from the lesser to the greater. Uh, you might use it if somebody 
uh, is trying to pick up a box and you tell them, come on, my three-year-old can pick up that box. You're saying, if my three-year-old can pick up that box, surely you are able to pick up the box. If one is true, a lesser version of it is true, how much more? How much surer is the greater one true? And Peter's stacking these. I mean, if it happened to the angel, and if it happened in the ancient world, if it happened through a flood, and if it happened to these cities, Sodom and Gomorrah, if Lot, for crying out loud, (laughs) was rescued, surely, surely God doesn't change. And as this wickedness increases, we've got way more people than they had in Genesis 6. This earth is much more populated with wickedness than in Genesis 6, just by sheer number of population. And maybe when you were growing up, you read Genesis 13, you're like, wow, how can a society get there? I don't think you're thinking that now. I think you're reading Genesis 13 now, and you're like, oh, that is why that law is passed. That's why that person on Facebook says that. We're in it. And what Peter's telling them is, hey, you remember reading these Old Testament stories, and you're like, wow, what was that like to be surrounded by wickedness and, and escape? What was that like to be no one is family, and everybody else is going one way, and you're going the other way. What was it like to be such a weirdo building an ark, and they're like a flood? A what? How do you spell flood? What is that? Unknown to them at the time. What was it like to just look like a crazy preacher, apparently, a herald of righteousness? So Noah wasn't just building as they came and asked them, what is this? He would tell them. And apparently invite them. You know, if you turn, there's room in here. No, you're an idiot. What was that like? Peter's going, you don't have to imagine what that's like. You live in a greater time. This is, th- those are pictures, small pictures, of something greater. The big, great, final judgment of the world. And you're right in the cusp of it. You're right there. You feel alone? Join the club. Those Old Testament stories are there to help you understand what it's like to feel alone. What it's like to be just eight people. What it's like to just be Lot in a city of people that live in total contradiction to God's word. And so I want you to be encouraged in a couple of ways. I want you to be encouraged that God's justice is sure. God's judgment is coming. And when you're sure of that, It'll help you be a herald of righteousness. You see, if, if Noah was like, I think 50-50 chance this is actually going to happen. He might start cutting corners in the building of the ark. People come and ask him about it. He's going to be like, ah, you know what, man? I'm just building a house. I know it looks weird, but, you know, like he'll just fudge a little bit because he's just not really that sure. What if judgment doesn't come and I'm stuck with this big old boat? You know, like what if the animals don't actually obey God's marching orders. I don't know how to wrangle these weird animals. You know, half of them is hard to tell, male, female, like, are they the same age? Are they... How am I going to do this? It's weird. It's crazy sounding. But if he doubted himself, he wouldn't herald righteousness. He'd be constantly like, yeah, I don't know, I don't know. And so it is when you are sure that God's judgment is not asleep It is not idle. It's not there for nothing. It's not just words. It's sure and it's coming. When you're sure of that, you're going to go, oh my goodness, these people are so confused. And I know I'm the minority, but they've got it wrong. 
And I'm not going to sit here just secretly like, oh man, I can't wait till, till judgment because I'm going to laugh all the way up, all the way up until my new body in the sky. No, you're going to go, I hope others will join me. And so you develop a compassion for those that are surrounded, you know, you're surrounded by that are embroiled in this stuff. You develop a heart for the people that are getting confused by false words out there. And you don't go, you know, I just want to be respectful. Everybody has a different opinion. No, you say, let's go to Scripture. Let's grab coffee and open up the Bibles, actually. Not as a jerk, but as someone who wants to, look, if I'm wrong, show me how I'm wrong. But if I'm right, you're in trouble believing that stuff. Let's talk. Let's be heralds of righteousness. We know our salvation is secure, but salvation isn't secure for some of the people that we know. Let's go talk to them and be those heralds of righteousness that we're called to be, that Jesus calls us to be. So I want you to be encouraged that justice is coming, judgment is sure, but I want you to be encouraged not in a way that holds you up in a basement as you wait for it, but instead gets you out there and engaging with people. And are you going to get beat up verbally? Are you going to lose friends? Yes, I'm sure Noah did. Why do you think Lot's wife was so tempted to look back? That was home, right? And so it's hard to do that. And we might feel greatly distressed, but we're supposed to engage Finally, I think we're supposed to be encouraged not to follow their ways, not to be those, verse 10, that indulge in the lust of defiling passion. The church throughout the history of the church has not taught certain things on sexuality to stifle you, handcuff you, make life difficult for you. It was created for a purpose. It's supposed to be a covenant sign of a marriage relationship that pictures the relationship between Christ and the church. And so it doesn't matter how much garbage is on your streaming network. It doesn't matter how normal things are out there. God is jealous to protect certain things, especially those lusts and passions that so easily take us astray. This despising of authority Let us be a kind of church that says, no, I want to make sure I've got it right. I want to make sure I've got it right. I don't want to read the Bible on my own, but like Monty was talking about the importance of growth groups in the beginning of the service. Part of that is getting together and going, hey, I'm looking at Scripture. How are you looking at Scripture? You know, maybe maybe I read this wrong. And weighing in on each other, not in a jerky way, right, but an encouraging way. Like, oh, that's interesting. I didn't see that before underlining stuff that you wouldn't have underlined had you not been together with other people that don't despise authority, but embrace it and want to get things right. That's the mark of a church that trembles at God rather than at false teachers. I want to encourage us to embrace a kind of Christianity that isn't scared of the world kind of Christianity that recognizes the world is in trouble. And we're the only ones with anything to say that is going to make any difference for them in the long run. Let's be vocal. Let's not hide. Let's pray.